Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. So glad you're here. Title of our podcast today is The Four Failures That Undermine Deep Discipleship. The Four Failures That Undermine Deep Discipleship. And actually, this comes out of uh, the first chapter of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book that is being released uh, in one week, if you are listening to this immediately when it's released. Now, my plan over the next several weeks is to do a series uh, on each of the chapters from the book, uh, actually as a, as a means to uh, supplement uh, your reading uh, and hopefully discussion of the content of the book. Now, we've got a, a set of great introduction videos and an excellent discussion guide for teams uh, that's available to you uh, for free. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Now, I wrote this book in such a way uh, that it is meant to be something that you'll wrestle with, uh, not simply personally, but for what you're building as a leader, uh, your ministry and uh, your church. And so my process actually in, in writing this book actually came out of a invitation that was given to me a few years ago uh, by Zondervan, our, our publisher. Now, many of you know I wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church uh, in 2003. That's 18 years ago. And, uh, you know, one of the publishers says, Pete, you know, of all your books, it's the one book that actually is, uh, was written at a particular moment in history uh, that has a number of things that are outdated in it. And I said, absolutely. Uh, and, he goes, and, and they made the point that I've written a lot of ebooks that we've made for free over the years available to people. And uh, my thinking has matured over the last 18 years. And uh, so they suggested, hey, just take four to six months and take those ebooks you've written and self-published and put them into this book and boom, you'll have a new book. They said it'll probably take you four to six months. Well, I knew better than that. Uh, and actually, so here it is a couple of years later, uh, the book is released. I knew it would take a, a couple of years to do that. And so th this book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, is uh, really quite different uh, from the others. Emotionally Healthy Leader uh, was focused on the person, your the inner life of a leader that informs everything we do in the outer life. Uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality was written uh, for the person you know, attending uh, church, uh, everyone. It was meant to be an introduction, a broad introduction to what is emotionally healthy spirituality. But this book, Emotionally Discipleship, is written particularly to leaders, uh, and it's written to build a culture, uh, a biblical theology for building a church or ministry culture that deeply changes lives and thus impacts the world for Christ. And it's meant to highlight uh, the missing pieces of discipleship in the global church uh today. And again, providing a theological education to address uh, issues uh, that maybe, that we're not confronting, and actually this theological foundation thus informing then everything we do as we go forward. So I, I didn't want to write a three to 400 page book by any means. I wanted to be nuanced and thoughtful and have depth, but keep it uh, somewhat limited in terms of pages that it would be accessible and uh, that was really one of my big challenges uh, in writing it. And a book, of course, that would stand the test of time uh, in terms of being wrestled with by the church, by leadership, as we think about how we're going to be effective in our mission for Christ in seeing people deeply changed by Christ in their area of discipleship, <clears throat> and thus in development of leaders as well, because all leadership development comes out of great discipleship. 
So the book is very simply divided into two parts. The first is simply the current state of discipleship. And the bulk of the book is part two, which is the seven marks of emotionally healthy discipleship. Be before you do is the first. The second is follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. The third is embrace God's gift of limits. The fourth is discover the treasures buried in grief and loss. The fifth is make love the core measure of spiritual maturity. The sixth is break the power of the past. And the seventh is to lead out of weakness and vulnerability. And if we hope to multiply deeply transformed disciples and leaders, uh, these theological realities must become a part of the fabric of our lives, our thinking, our hearts, and our ministry cultures. And so and the book actually ends with them with a long-term strategy of how do I actually implement this in my church? But <clears throat> let's just dig in here to the uh, uh, really the, the, the opening chapter of the, of the four failures that undermine deep discipleship. Because the problem is that uh, uh, is globally, we are in a situation of shallow discipleship where the focus on getting numbers in a room, uh, connecting, growing, serving, uh, keeping it simple, easy to do, uh, quickly visible growth we have in front of us. Uh, but the question, the problem is that it leads to a shallowness, uh, which is what the whole book is meant to address, moving us from a shallow Christianity to deep transformation in Christ. So uh, this first chapter actually was my most difficult to write. Uh, I would say I spent probably three to six months on this one, easy, because uh, identifying what are the failures that undermine deep discipleship. Now, if we sat here and made a list, we could probably have 30, 40 different failures. Uh, of, but I, I wanted to get at the failure beneath the failures, underneath the surface, kind of like digging up the roots uh, of a system so that you can plant well. And the problem is if we don't get these roots problems uh, right, we end up uh, digging in the wrong places, and they end, they end up coming back to haunt us later. And uh, so, so my first challenge was, what are the roots? Uh, and not just giving a superficial answer, but and then secondly, how do I make this as succinct as possible uh, and not lose you and readers in the process? Because uh, I ended up with four failures in particular. Uh, each of which, of course, could have been its own book. And what happens is you see them being fleshed out throughout the book in the seven marks of emotionally of the discipleship. But apart from a clear understanding of the depth of the problem, uh, we will not stick with the long-term solution that's required to fully address the widespread damage that these failures are causing in our churches and in the lives of our people, and in our own personal lives as well. So uh, all four of these failures, which I'm going to mention right now, are, are basically an inadequate theology, uh, uh, one that's not fully developed and thus has all kinds of negative consequences. So let's take them one at a time here in our podcast today. The first, the first failure is that we tolerate emotional immaturity. We tolerate emotional immaturity. In other words, we... Uh, we just accept uh, behavior uh, in our churches and our ministries uh, among Christians who are considered mature. That really is, I, I like the word, it's outrageous. It's, whether it's a detachment or carry, people carrying around a lot of anger <clears throat> or folks being unteachable or insecure or defensive or very unaware or critical 
uh, or a need to be admired by other people or avoidant of conflict or not being transparent. I mean, the list just goes on. But uh, we've somehow got this notion in the church that you can be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. <clears throat> and so the question is, how do we get here? What's the reasons behind this theologically? Uh, because Jesus was very clear that loving God and loving people, uh, uh, these two things are inseparable. In fact, when Jesus was asked, give me the greatest commandment, he said, no, there's two, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't separate them. So uh, we, we, you know, we think about tolerating immaturity. We, we no longer measure our love for God by the degree to which we love other people. Uh, yet Jesus clearly did. Uh, that was his big clash with the Pharisees and Sadducees. In fact, so did Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, uh, you know, you can speak in the tongues of angels and have faith and move mountains, give all your money to the poor. But basically, if you're cold and unsafe and defensive and rigid and unapproachable or judgmental, uh, he says, it's worth nothing. <clears throat> you're spiritually immature. Uh, and uh, in fact, Jesus most perhaps radical teaching was that uh, loving your enemies uh, is what sets apart uh, a true follower of Christ. Uh, and that uh, enemies are not actually interruptions in the Christian life, but they're actually the means by which we experience deeper communion with God. And so uh, we don't measure spiritual maturity so much on, lo on loving other people, yet Jesus clearly did. And then we, of course, we elevate the spiritual over and against the emotional. And uh, most Christians value the spiritual aspect of our lives over other parts of our humanity, like our physical, our emotional, our social, our intellectual aspects of who we are as people made in the image of God. And uh, this goes, this, this has a long history to it. Now, again, uh, different aspects of God's image in us, again, I mentioned a few, which are physical aspect, we're emotional beings, we're social beings, we're intellectual beings, and we're, and, uh, we're emotional beings. We're, we're, into, we're spiritual beings, I'm sorry. Uh, and, but how did we get to the place where we elevate the spiritual and distrust the emotional so much? And the answer to that goes back to uh, actually Plato, uh, paganism, pre-Christ, uh, who basically taught, if I could do it in most simple terms, that the body is bad and the spirit is good. And, uh, and what happened as early church history developed, Augustine in particular really popularized that. Uh, and he was a Neoplatonist uh, and really brought out into mainstream theology this exalting of the spirit over and against the emotional. And I love what Dan Allender and Tremper Longman uh, wrote, uh, Trevor Long was a theologian, Old Testament scholar, in, in their book, Cry the Soul. And they said it so well, um, and they said this, that they, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. That listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement, and in neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. And so two of the heresies that were really uh, in the church, in, uh, in early church history, were uh, you know, this Neoplatonism. And, but the second is, was this docetism, that Jesus was, is, was fully God, but not necessarily fully human. And uh, in fact, the, the, the worship of Jesus I fell into in my early years as a Christian was he was very much God, but I didn't 
really enter into his life as a full human being, fully God and fully human. And I missed the stories of Jesus who freely expressed his emotions uh, without shame, whether it's tears or his grief or anger or compassion or astonishment or wonder. Uh, I mean, Jesus was a full human being uh, and fully God. And, uh, and so this toleration of emotional immaturity in our churches actually has uh, a long history, and it's really a theological issue. And that's why I love what this rabbi uh, many years ago said to me, Pete, why are you Christians so hung up on sexuality? And I just simply said to him, I said, uh, it's a long story. Uh, it's a long story. Because he, he was marking, he was marking how it just wasn't the case in his decades of uh, being a rabbi over congregations. Again, their Hebrew sense of what it means to be human and made in the image of God. Uh, he saw a distinct contrast uh, with Christians he had met over the years. So first failure is we tolerate emotional immaturity. The second is we emphasize doing for God over being with God. Uh, we emphasize doing for God over being with God. And and uh, th- this really hits us at the issue of, of limits. Uh, and so, as many of you know, in our efforts to, to serve God, many of us end up skimming on our relationship with God. We're hurrying, we're trying to make the most of every minute, and we're exhausted and, and uh, feeling overloaded, overburdened. And, and so this, this doing for God, which comes so much out of Western culture of production, getting things done, uh, what happens is our being with, being with Jesus ends up being uh, minimized. And so the Mary Martha story is the one I, I mentioned a couple of times throughout the book. I introduce it here. Uh, if Mary is the one who sits at the, sits at the feet of Jesus. She's being with Jesus. And then Martha is the one who's doing for Jesus. She's active. And it's that balance of how do I do for Jesus out of a deep being with Jesus. And, um, and uh, you know, it's, I think of two scales there. And so the, the, the challenge is that we're so emphasizing a big failure to churches, getting things done, production, visible, external uh, fruit that people can see, that we end up giving away something that's not actually in us. And uh, we can only give what we possess. We cannot give what we don't possess. And the truth is, uh, so many folks are talking and giving away stuff that they've not had time to actually allow to get deeply nourished in their interior life with God and themselves. And the sad thing is it has all kinds of uh, horrible implications to it. So next week, the first, actually the first mark of emotionally healthy discipleship uh, culture is that we be before we do. So I'm not going to say any more about that because we'll get into that. But but that emphasis on doing is so great. As someone said to me recently, I spent decades, all I was taught was I do, you do. The entire emphasis of my life was doing. I never heard about this idea of being with Jesus first. So, again, we'll get into that next week. The third large failure that undermines deep discipleship in the church is we ignore the treasures of church history. We ignore the treasures of church history. So it's not only that we tolerate emotional immaturity. It's not only that we emphasize doing for God over being with God, but we actually ignore treasures of of the world, of the global church and church history. Now, I, I talk about briefly uh here in this chapter and the 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 the, the, the uh, some truths about church history that because we're ignorant of them we end up making decisions or have approaches uh towards things that are just unbiblical 
so the first is that there's only one church in the world. Uh, there's only one stream of God in the world. And, uh, you know, I came to faith through, uh, through uh, the Protestant stream, the evangelical stream, the Pentecostal stream in the church. And, uh, and we've got a stream that goes back to the Reformation, 500 years, and initiated by Ruther, and a great commitment to personal relationship with Jesus, and Scripture is the Word of God, and the cross of Christ who died and shed his blood for us, and uh, Scripture is the Word of God, and mobilizing God's people for mission. And, and I love our stream. But yet we're part of a much larger stream in the church, um, a global stream. The church is global and, and it's it's historical. And uh, and so I've got to be open to learn from streams outside of my own uh, because each one has its distinctive gifts and uh, uh, gifts to transformation. And uh, there's so much to learn from the global church. But this global church actually has three branches to it. There's three main branches in the church that is it. There's the Orthodox Church, which is primarily in the eastern part of the world. And then we have the Roman Catholic stream. And then as well, we have the Protestant stream. Uh, now, for the first 1,054 years of the church, there was only one stream in the church. There's only one church. And uh, it was the church. And so whenever a theological problem or division arose, uh, the bishops and leaders from the five major cities of the empire would gather. Uh, They'd come from Alexandria, Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople. And they would gather to discuss the issues that were you know, confronting the church. And these became known as ecumenical or church-wide councils. Uh, and uh, these church-wide councils would deal with theological thorny issues like the nature of the Trinity or Jesus being fully God and fully human. And they eventually articulated the, the core of Christian faith, the contours of what Scripture says uh, about God and truth and Father, Son, Holy Spirit in what's known as the Nicene Creed. Uh, and I actually, I, I published it and it's in the back of the book in an appendix. Uh, and the reason this was so important is because uh, basically there was lots of things began to emerge in the, in the early centuries of the church that were off kilter from scripture. And and, uh, and so this Nicene Creed became the contours of, of orthodoxy, the bedrock, the guardrails of what we believe. What's so interesting, I meet, and the reason this is particularly important today is I'm amazed when I meet people who just decide that, you know, they're going to change 2,000 years of, of biblical theology. Uh, and very often they come from like a very narrow, uh, I often say upper middle class, uh, you know, suburban American Christian decides to change doctrine of the church that's been around for 2,000 years. And I'm like, where, where are you getting that from? And so you have, you have, in a sense, liberal on one side, then you've got conservatives. Uh, some people will say, well, we're the only church. You know, our particular movement or denomination or local church, we are the only true church. If you really want to get to God, you've got to go through us. Well, that's also declared a heresy uh, by the early church. In fact, one of the lines of the Nicene Creed is, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, and it was, it was to be recited in churches every week because there were people uh, in North Africa called Donatists uh, in the 3rd and 4th centuries who claimed to be the only true church. And if you wanted to be saved, you had to go to their church. And they were declared heretics. That no, we believe in one, there's one church, uh, all those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's holy, it's set apart for God, it's Catholic with a small c, it's universal, and it's apostolic. It's based on the apostles. Uh, teaching found in scripture. That's why I play, I pray the Our Father uh, on, you know, almost every day, if not every day. And I, because I say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And, 
Every time I say our father, I'm just so aware he's our father globally, worldwide. I'm part of this huge family of God with people in from Syria and Russia and Latin America and Africa and the Mideast and everywhere in the world. This is fantastic. And uh, 1,600 years, the Nicene Creed has been the bedrock, in our rule of faith. But then the church, of course, it split in 1054 into these three branches. And the Eastern and Western church, again, depending on where you live, is which part of the church you were part of. The Eastern and Western church did not speak for 900 years. And then we had the Protestant Reformation in 1517. We had another split. And we've had 300,000 splits plus since then. But we're part of a larger whole. And we've got to be open to learn from brothers and sisters different from us. Uh, we're not the whole church, uh, and uh, we have a lot to learn from people with whom uh, we see things differently. So you may be, uh, you know, Orthodox or Roman Catholic listening to this, and you may be Protestant, but we're we're learning from each other because we're all committed to Jesus and following Him and multiplying disciples for the sake of the world. But there's another very critical truth for us to get in this podcast is that. Uh, the, the Protestant stream uh, is one stream, and we also have dirty laundry. Every stream has its problems. Uh, the Catholic Church has problems. The Orthodox Church has problems. So does the Protestant Church. And uh, I, it, it, I spent a lot of time in our seminary when I attended, put it, you know, finding the problems of the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches. But we didn't spend a lot of time talking about our own dirty laundry. And it was quite a shock for me to learn that oh, oh, wait a second, <laughs> Martin Luther. Uh, dislike Jews intensely uh, and wrote essays about that. Uh, Nazis liked some of those writings. Uh, Zwingli was a Reformation pastor, drowned people who believed in baptism by immersion. Some of them were his former students. I'm a baptism by immersion person. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield had slaves. Uh, uh, I mean, I've had people, African-Americans say to us in our church, these people really, could they really have been Christians? Uh, And many folks in the Protestant missionary movement uh, were failures in their own marriage and family, John Wesley being one of them. Even the Azusa Street Revival, uh, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, in 1906 in Los Angeles, which has spawned now you know, the, the great move of the Holy Spirit around the world since then, uh, split terribly over race. And so, uh, again, we all have our blind spots and dirty laundry, but when God looks at the church in the world, he doesn't see denominations or movements uh, he doesn't see thousands of local churches that are split by theological div- divides. He sees one church that spans continents, that transcends cultures, and has a long and rich history that's the light and salt of the earth. And we are part of this global and historical church. And so we we love the church, and which God has put in the world to be a blessing. The church, I am fully convinced, is the most important institution of the on, on the planet. Uh, in bringing the kingdom of God uh, in Jesus uh, to the world. But there's a fourth uh, problem in the fourth deep failure of the church today. So it's not just we, we tolerate emotional immaturity. It's not just that we emphasize doing for God over being for God, being with God. And it's not simply that we ignore the treasures of, of uh, church history. There's a fourth failure uh, that undermines deep discipleship in our churches, and that is that we define success wrongly. We define success wrongly. This is so deep in our culture and so deep in the church that it is hard to see. I I like to compare it with the beast uh, of the book of Revelation. 
Revelation describes the beast, which in that day was personified by the Roman Empire. Uh, and behind the beast are demonic powers of principalities, the great dragon, eager to cut off, uh, cut us off from loving union and abiding in Jesus. Uh, well, the beast uh, has allowed a definition of success to get so deep in the church uh, that it's done great damage. And this failure to define success properly has done great damage. In fact, I consider this issue of definition of success one of the one of the temptations of the evil one in the wilderness for Jesus, of course, but it's one of the great temptations that confronts every one of us as believers. Uh, and COVID-19 has really brought that to light uh, as the church has been was shut down all at once uh, this past year around the pandemic. Uh, and all of a sudden, we, ha- we found ourselves struggling with what is success. But for most of us, uh, numbers or success is bigger is better. And uh, bigger influence, bigger platforms, bigger impact, bigger budgets, bigger, bigger churches. And again, the logic is simple. If you're not growing, getting bigger, you're probably failing. Uh, and yet, the de- definition of success in Scripture is very simply becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way uh, and according to his timetable. I'll just say it again because it's so important. It's such a contrast to how we define success today. Success, according to Scripture, is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. That's why I like to say what this means is that it's possible that your ministry or organization can be growing numerically and yet actually failing. And it's possible that your ministry and your numbers may be declining and yet you're actually succeeding. Uh, and so all numerical markers, whether it's bigger programs or more more attendance or bigger budgets or more groups or more church plants, all of that takes a backseat to listening to Jesus, to abiding and abounding in Jesus and listening to his will and doing his will. Uh, what that looks like for you in your situation is going to be different than me or someone else, from a nonprofit leader to a business person in the marketplace to a pastor in uh, Saudi Arabia or Colombia or Benin, it's all going to be different. Here in New York City or you're in Alabama, it's all going to be different. And when we when we define success wrongly, our best energies get invested wrongly. We spend our time on the wrong things. We're stressed. We're anxious. The yoke of Jesus is no longer easy and light. It suddenly becomes hard and heavy. We find ourselves envying. And again, there's not the joy, the peace, the life, the long-term fruit that flows out of having a deep sense of I'm right in the center of where God wants me to be. And of course, it only produces shallow discipleship. And so again, the reason success is so critical is because discipleship is such a messy work. Uh, It's slow work. It was for Jesus with the 12. Uh, He was day and night with them for 12 years. Uh, And one of them didn't uh, make it, Judas. Uh, And again, you can't read the Gospels without realizing how painstaking it was. It wasn't a conveyor belt of a manufacturing plant. Uh, it was He wasn't trying to just scale it. Uh, it was messy and it was customized relationally to the people. And uh, so the four failures, let me just review them more time and let me bring this to a close, is that these four failures undermine deep discipleship, deep transformation from happening in our churches. One is we tolerate emotional immaturity. Second failure is we choose to do for God rather than be with God. 
The third failure is we ignore the treasures of church history. And the fourth is we define success wrongly. And so if we're going to be serious about building a church that's going to be able to stand the test of, of the generation that's, that we're living in and the one that's coming uh, and impact the world for Christ, uh, we've got to let these failures, we've got to address these failures first in our own lives and then the way we're equipping others. And then finally, in the way we're building healthy cultures and communities, you know, for Christ. So let me invite you again, to, uh, as we close here, to get a hold of a great set of introdu introdu introduction videos, uh, an excellent discussion guide for your team uh, on the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book at emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Uh, I, I wrote this not that you just read it quickly. Uh, it is actually meant to be wrestled with uh, for your own personal life and, of course, in your leadership. Uh, and I'm trying. I'm going to be laying out some pillars in the coming weeks of, of a systematic theology in a sense of building healthy culture. Uh, and these things need to be thought about. Uh, and uh, because we're talking about really, in a sense, a new operating system of what it means to be the church. And uh, this is not simply a tweak. Uh, we're getting at some foundational theological issues uh, that need to be addressed in our lives, in our churches, if we're going to multiply uh, churches, disciples, and leaders uh, for the generations to come. So thank you so much. It's been so good to be with you. Again, let me encourage you, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship uh, and begin just reading and picking up on some of these free materials on the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much for being with me. And I pray you have a wonderful, wonderful day.